Right, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Well, I'm really excited about our topic this morning. Forgiveness, I think, is one of the most important things in life, both for the individual and the church. I think Jesus felt the same way. Jesus spoke in many passages in great depth about the subject of forgiveness. For that reason, I have a ton of stuff to cover this morning. There are so many teachings from Jesus about forgiveness. So as I recall, I think I let you out about five minutes early last week. Well, that was a loan. I'm going to call in that loan this week. So I may go a few minutes late because forgiveness is such a crucial subject to our Lord. Now, two weeks ago, I left you on a bit of a theological cliffhanger as we studied the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. We were studying this model prayer from Jesus, and we got to verse 12 of chapter 6. Look with me there. Jesus said, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, that makes it look like God's forgiveness of me follows my forgiveness of others. I need to forgive others if God's going to forgive me. Well, Jesus makes that point explicit. Look down at verse 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, that's pretty clear there. That's pretty direct. It seems to say to me that if I am not a forgiving person, that God will not forgive me, that he will rescind forgiveness. He will take back forgiveness. Is, Is Jesus saying that if I'm not a forgiving person, that I will lose my salvation, that I will forfeit the forgiveness of God? Well, that's a really tough question theologically. Seems like this contradicts everything that we studied last semester in Galatians about the the gospel of grace. Well, we're going to wrestle with that theological question later this morning, but we're not going to start there. Where I want to start this morning is I want you to notice in this passage, despite the theological difficulty, the application is very clear. Jesus is very clear. We must be forgiving people. Jesus doesn't just expect, he demands that his followers offer forgiveness to others, that we forgive others. Forgiveness, in fact, is supposed to be a a foundational, a fundamental part of our lives as followers of Christ. That's why it makes it into the Lord's Prayer. Remember, the Lord's Prayer, that's the model for how we should pray every day, more than once a day. Forgiveness of others should be a normal part of our spiritual lives. Every day we should be offering forgiveness to other people. Forgiveness is an essential part of life for the follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ and not be a forgiving person. Forgiveness is essential. And so this morning, we are going to wrestle with this subject. We're going to study this subject. What does Jesus teach us about forgiveness? We're going to study first, what does the word mean? What does it mean to forgive? Then how do we do it? How do I offer you forgiveness in the way that Jesus expects of me? And finally, since forgiveness is a really hard thing, since it's not a natural thing, why should we do it? Why should we follow these teachings of Jesus Christ and forgive one another? So that's where we're headed. We're going to start with a definition. Now, uh, when you see the word forgive in the New Testament, it's a translation of a Greek word, aphiemi. 
And it's actually a really interesting word in Greek. It's a verb that's used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament. It has a wide range of meaning. Let me give you some examples from the book of Matthew. The word ephiemi, it can mean to permit someone to do something. Like in Matthew 3.15. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. That's the verb ephiemi. It can mean to leave someone or something behind. Matthew 4.20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Left, that's a fiemi. Can mean to give away something or let it be taken. Matthew 5, 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. A fiemi again. Can mean to neglect a responsibility. Matthew 23, 23. You tithe, mint, and dill and come in and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, uh, we haven't even gotten yet to the use of this for forgive, but what I want you to see in all four of those uses of the word, there's a common idea, a concept that undergirds all four of them. It's the concept of letting go. That's the basic idea of this word. A fia means to let go, to release. I, I let go of control over something so that I can permit you to do as you see fit. I let go of something that belongs to me, my nets or my coats. I release them. I let them go. I let go of a responsibility. I should have held on to it, but I let it go. I drop it. That's the basic idea of this word, to let go or release. And that same concept is in mind when we get to the translation forgive. To forgive means to let go of or release an offense. That's biblical forgiveness. I am letting go of a sin. I am not holding on to it. I'm not holding it near. I'm not holding it in front of my face. I let go of it. I get rid of it. I release it. That's what it means to forgive. Now, it helps knowing what it means to forgive, but how do we actually do it? Let's get practical for a minute. What does it take to forgive someone? What are the steps I must walk through to offer biblical forgiveness to the person who has wronged me? Well, Jesus teaches us that there are two steps involved in biblical forgiveness. So let me walk you through these. Two steps that Jesus lays out for us. Step number one, if you want to forgive someone, if you want to let go of their sin, of their offense, the first step you must walk through is you must choose to give up your right to demand payment or punishment. That's the first step of forgiveness. I give up, let go of my right to demand payment or punishment. Okay, look uh, one chapter earlier, Matthew chapter 5. Let's look in verse 38. Jesus helps us understand this first step of forgiveness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, he quotes here from the Mosaic law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That was the biblical law of retribution. It appears many times in the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. God laid out this law. He said, if somebody wrongs you, it's not okay to take, if they, if they hurt your eye, if they bust a tooth, you can't take their life. But you can have retribution. You can do to them what they did to you. You can seek an equal payment, a a requisite punishment for how they've wronged you. In other words, the law said it was okay. It was legal to demand justice, to demand payment when someone hurts you. That's the law. It's legal to do that. And yet Jesus challenges us as his disciples to go beyond that, to let go of our legal right to demand payment or punishment. That's what forgiveness means, to let go of my right to exact requisite payment from you. 
I let go of that. Instead of giving you what you deserve, punishment, I'm going to give you grace or mercy. Instead, I'm not going to resist you. I'm not going to fight against you. I'm not going to seek to get from you what I deserve. Instead, I'm going to show you grace. And then Jesus illustrates it in verse 39, very graphically, this idea of whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, now, let me be very clear here. This idea of slapping on the cheek, there's no sense of physical abuse or violence in this verse. This is not a punch to the cheek. There's probably not pain involved here. This is actually an issue of an insult. So uh, this verse can never be used in the context of physical abuse or domestic violence. That's not at all what this is about. If there is a a woman who is being physically abused or children who are being physically abused, this verse does not apply to them. They should not turn the other cheek. They should go to the police. It's not at all what Jesus is talking about. In the ancient world, one of the most insulting things that I could do to you would be to slap you on the cheek in public. That was a huge insult, an incredible insult. Um, it, It actually carried a huge fine. If you slapped me on the cheek, I could take you before the authorities and they would, they would do a number of things to you. They could fine you, uh, all the way to they could actually cut off your ear as a sign of shame because you have shamed me. Okay, so this is a huge public insult is what Jesus is talking about. And in Jewish society, the right cheek was uh, more honorable than the left cheek. I don't really understand that, but it was. And so you could actually demand double payment if someone struck you on the right cheek, double the fine, double the punishment upon them. So Jesus is talking to an audience for whom they had the legal right, if someone slapped them, to take that person before the authorities and demand justice, payment, punishment upon that person. It was their legal right to demand payment, yet that's not forgiveness. It's their legal right, but it is not forgiveness. Jesus does not want them to take that right and act upon that legal right. Instead, he wants them to let go, to give up that legal right to payment or punishment and instead give grace in place. Give grace, give mercy, give forgiveness. That's the first step of biblical forgiveness is we give away our right to exact punishment or payment. Paul talks about a similar thing in Romans chapter 12. He says, never take your own revenge, your own retribution, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul's saying forgiveness is ultimately, it's an act of faith, of trust. Instead of demanding justice, instead of taking justice into my own hands and making things right, I entrust justice to God. I say, God, I'm going to trust you to make things right. I'm going to give up my right to justice, my right to payment, my right to punishment. I entrust that to you. And instead of giving this person what they deserve, I'm going to give them grace and mercy instead. That's the first step of biblical forgiveness. It's a choice. Now, I do want to clarify something, though, because this could be misunderstood. When Jesus talks about giving up our rights to demand payment or punishment, he is not suggesting that we should overlook or ignore sin. In Luke chapter 17, a similar context, Jesus teaches his disciples about forgiveness. And he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. To rebuke means to to express strong disapproval of something. You are telling someone in no uncertain terms, you have hurt me. You've hurt me badly. Here's what you did. You're calling out their sin. It's confrontation. Jesus wants us to understand confrontation and forgiveness are not antithetical. They actually go together. 
Now, now notice in the context here, this is when a brother sins against me. Jesus is not calling us to rebuke unbelievers. Unbelievers are still lost in sin. They are still slaves of sin. They can't help but sin against you. Don't go rebuke an unbeliever. There's no purpose for that. Instead, give them the grace of the gospel. This is about believers. This is in the church. When we sin against one another, what Jesus wants us to understand is that the gift that we give to each other is not just forgiveness. It is also rebuke. The best thing that you can do for me if I sin against you is to rebuke me, to confront me, to call me out on that sin. In the six and a half years that Julie and I have been married, one of the greatest gifts she has given to me is honesty. She comes to me and she confronts me when I hurt her. She confronts me about sin, but over this last six and a half years, if she would have simply ignored my sins against her, if she would not have told me what I had done that had hurt her, I wouldn't grow as a husband. How could I? I wouldn't know my sin. I wouldn't know what my actions were doing to her. Confrontation is a gift we give to one another. When a believer sins against you, you owe them the favor of going and confronting them. Hey, you sinned and you really hurt me. Now, regardless of how they respond, you still give forgiveness. Forgiveness is non-negotiable. But you go and, and you rebuke them. Now, I think another helpful clarification here is this is, this is a brother who sins against you. Um, we live in a fallen, broken world. We're going to accidentally hurt each other all the time. We're, we're fallen people. We're going to rub up against each other and hurt each other all the time. We're going to miscommunicate. We're going to leave something unsaid. We're going to forget to do something. We're going to hurt each other unintentionally all the time. And I don't really think that's what Jesus is talking about here. When people unintentionally hurt you, you can usually just let that stuff go. This is about an intentional sin. Someone does something they know is wrong and it hurts you. In that case, in addition to giving forgiveness, you need to give them the gift of rebuke. You need to call them out on it. Let them know. We're talking about significant sin someone commits against you. A believer commits against you. Now, in a passage where we don't have time to go through, in Matthew 18, Jesus actually lays out a process for confrontation. When a believer sins against you, first you go to them privately. You don't talk about it to anybody else. You go confront them in private. If they don't repent, if they don't listen, you take along one or two mature witnesses who who saw what they did and together you confront them. If they still don't repent, then you take it to the church, specifically to the elders, and they deal with it. Again, we're talking about serious sin here. The idea is the favor we give one another is not just forgiveness, it's also confrontation. Jesus wants us to do that for one another. But no matter how the person responds to your confrontation, you must forgive. We must be willing to forgive one another. And step number one of biblical forgiveness is to let go of, to release our right to demand payment or punishment from one another. That's step number one of forgiveness, but forgiveness is not over at this point. Forgiveness is not finished at that moment in time you decide not to exact payment or punishment. Because, you see, at some point in the future, you're going to see that person again who hurt you. You're going to come across them in the store or in the foyer of the church, in the children's wing. You're going to see them, and when you see them, what's going to come to your mind is the memory of their offense. The pain they caused you is going to come flooding back to your mind. You're going to remember that sin they committed against you. And that's when you face the second step of biblical forgiveness. Not only must we let go of our right to demand payment or punishment, but we must also choose not to rehearse the offense. When I see that person who has sinned against me and the memory of that offense comes to mind, I remember the pain, I face a choice at that moment. 
I can choose to dwell on that memory. I can choose to rehearse, to actively remember what they've done, to let the tape of that, the recording of that offense play in my mind, to dwell on the details, to nurse the pain of what they've done to me. I can do that, but if I do that, I'm not forgiving. I have not forgiven them if I choose to let the tape play in my mind of their offense. Okay, this is actually where we get the, the statement, the idea of to forgive and forget. When we challenge a person to forgive and forget, we're not talking about literally forgetting something. You, you can't control what you remember or what you forget. What we're challenging them to do is to not actively remember it, not rehearse it in their mind, not let the recording of that sin play in their mind. That is how God forgives us. Let me show you a verse, Isaiah forty three twenty five. This is of God. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, when God says that he will not remember our sins, he's not saying he will literally forget our sins. God God can't forget anything. God is omniscient. He knows all things, past, present, and future. He knows every deed, every word, every thought, every, everything about us. He's always known it. He always will know it. God can't forget anything. What God's talking about is that he chooses not to rehearse it, not to actively remember it, not to give mental space to our sin anymore. He doesn't pull the record of our sin back in front of our eyes and review it and remember it. He doesn't do that. He sets it aside. Paul illustrates that for us with beautiful language in Colossians chapter 2. He said, he, that is God, made you alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, and now he's going to define forgiveness, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What Paul's saying to us is that God could have, at that that moment that we trusted in Jesus as our Savior, God could have taken our certificate of debt, the legal document that listed all of our sins that we've ever committed. He could have taken that certificate of debt and written paid on it and put it in his filing cabinet. He could have put it in our permanent record so that at any point in the future he could review that certificate of debt or he could pull that out and hold it in front of us if we were misbehaving and remind us, here, look what I paid for. But that's not what our God has done. At the moment we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior, God takes that certificate of debt, he writes paid on it, and then he crinkles it up and he places it on the cross. He doesn't put it in our permanent record. He doesn't put it in his filing cabinet. He takes it and he nails it to the cross where it is soaked and covered in the blood of his son. It's not even legible anymore. He can't even read the certificate of my debt anymore. It's gone. It's on the cross with Jesus. It was placed there 2,000 years ago. God will never pull back out my certificate of debt and hold it against me and rehearse it and review it. He doesn't do that. That's what forgiveness means. The second step of forgiveness. I don't keep a list of your wrongs. I don't keep a record of what you've done against me. I don't rehearse it. I take it and I wad it up and I leave it in the past. That's what Paul is getting to in one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13. He defines love for us. He says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. 
When Paul says, does not take into account a wrong suffered, he's using accounting language. In other words, love, the person who is acting in a loving and forgiving way, does not put on your account, on your permanent record, the list of your sins. Does not account what you have done. In other words, if if I'm a forgiving person, I don't keep any record of your sins. I, I don't keep a list of what you've done. I leave it in the past. I reject it. I think when we get to the sense of application, how do we actually do this? We can't control what we remember. When I see the person who's hurt me badly, those those memories are going to come flooding back to my mind. So what do I do if I want to not rehearse it? Well, the moment that you begin to remember the hurt that they've caused you, what you do is you turn to the Lord. You say, Father, this person really hurt me and it's coming back to my mind. Please help me to stop thinking about this. Please help me to change the channel in my brain and think about something else. When that thought comes to your mind, when that memory comes to your mind, you take that thought captive. You are master of your thoughts. Take the thought captive and reject it and think about something else. When you see that person in the foyer who hurt you and the memory of that pain comes to mind, stop, turn to the Lord and say, God, help me to think about something else. This is one of the helpful uh, reasons that we memorize scripture. When my mind is running out of control, when it's running in a direction that isn't helpful, I stop it by quoting scripture to myself. I'm not a multitasker. I can't think about multiple things. Scripture memory for me takes all of my brain, 100% of it, to remember scripture. So I start quoting scripture to myself and I stop thinking about what that person did. Okay, so biblical forgiveness, it begins with a moment in time choice to not exact retribution, to not exact payment or punishment from that person. But then it is followed by choice after choice after choice every time I see that person not to rehearse the wrong they've done to me. That may mean that biblical forgiveness takes years. For years I may struggle with the memory of what they did and every time I see them, every time the memory comes back, I take that thought captive, I reject it, I think about something else. That's biblical forgiveness. That's how God has forgiven us. That is how we are to forgive one another. But let's be honest with one another for a second. That kind of forgiveness is not easy. That kind of forgiveness is not natural. The way that Jesus defines forgiveness, actually my natural bent when someone hurts me is to do exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. If someone hurts me badly, what I naturally want to do is exact justice. I want payment. I want them to be punished. I want the world to be made right. I don't want to let go of my right to payment and punishment. Come on. I want the world to be just. God, judge them. I want my payment. I want my punishment from them. More than that, I don't want to give up the memory of what they've done. I want to nurse it. I want to think about it. It's hard to give up the the memory of that pain. I don't want to take my thoughts captive. That takes work. That takes effort. There is nothing natural nor easy about biblical forgiveness. There's no part of my fallen human nature that resonates with forgiveness. That's why we see so little genuine biblical forgiveness in our society. The the average American doesn't do what Jesus is talking about. What does the average American do when they are wronged by someone? Well, they take them to court to get the biggest payment they can. Six figures are up if you can get it. And, And they demand justice. They expect that justice will be served. And they sure don't forget the memory of that offense. They'll tell every reporter who will listen what that person has done to them. Forgiveness does not come naturally to us. It is hard. It is difficult to forgive somebody. It's not just something I do at a moment in time. I have to do it over and over and over again every time I see them, every time I remember the pain they've caused me. Forgiveness is hard. It is difficult. So why should we do it? 
Why should we put forth the effort, the sacrifice that biblical forgiveness requires? Well, Jesus tells us why. He gives us two reasons in a very significant parable. Matthew chapter 18. Turn to the right in your Bibles a little bit. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus wants us to understand why forgiveness is worth the effort, why it's worth the price. So he gives us a a very significant, very powerful story in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Look there in verse 21. Here's the context. It, It starts with a question. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling And went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And in that parable, Jesus lays out for us two reasons why we should forgive one another. Why we should release and let go of our right to payment and our right to remember and rehearse what was done to us. Reason number one that Jesus lays out for us, we should forgive others because we have been forgiven of far more. Let me me compare for a moment these two debts that are recorded in this passage. First debt, 10,000 talents. One talent in the ancient world was worth 6,000 days of labor from the common man. Took him 6,000 days worth of work to earn one talent. You do the math, 10,000 talents, that's 60 million days worth of work. It's over 164,000 years of working every day to earn that much money. In other words, this, this is an astronomical debt. Uh, there, there's commentators who say Jesus is being hyperbolic here. There's no one who could possibly owe that much money in the ancient world. There were whole kingdoms that were not worth that much money in the ancient world. It's an absurd amount of money. And yet, what does the king do? He forgives this infinitely high debt. At first, he's not going to. He's going to sell the slave, not that that's going to earn much money at all compared to this, but then the slave begs, please, and the king in compassion extends grace, forgiveness. Okay, but then what does that first slave do? He goes to a second slave who owes him a, a little bit less, 100 denarii. One denarii is one day's work. So this is 100 days worth of work. That's one six hundred thousandth of the first debt. Tiny, infinitesimal compared to the first debt. 
Okay, but what does that first slave do? Well, the second slave, he can't repay him. So what does the first slave do? He exercises his legal rights. It was the right of the first slave to have the second slave thrown into prison. Second slave owed him a debt. He couldn't pay. So the first slave simply acts on his rights and has the guy put in prison until he can pay him back. So the first slave is just doing what is legally his right to do. So why don't we like the first slave? Why do we look at the first slave and think, oh, what a, what a slimy guy? Well, it may have been his legal right to imprison the first slave, but man, is he being a hypocrite. Oh my gosh, this guy was just forgiven of an infinite debt. He was shown infinite grace from, from his king, and yet he can't extend even a little grace to his fellow servant, even a little bit of forgiveness to his fellow servant. This guy is an incredible hypocrite. Yet before we judge him too harshly, we need to realize in the parable, he's us. In the parable, we're the first slave. We who have been forgiven an infinite debt and yet find it so hard to truly forgive one another, we're the first slave. You see, for all of us, we did owe an infinite debt. The debt of sin. The Bible reveals to us that that God is our infinitely, eternally, always loving creator. He shows us nothing but good. He has always acted with justice and righteousness towards us. He has never wronged us. What do we owe such a God? We owe love. We owe obedience because he's always acted in perfect goodness to us. But what did we give him in return? Not love, not obedience, but sin and rebellion. We rebelled against the God who did nothing but love us. We sinned against him and that sin carries an incredibly heavy price. By sinning against this perfect, always loving God, we owe an infinite debt to him. We have separated ourselves from him. God is perfectly just. He must judge sin. He must punish sin. That that is what he must do as the just creator of heaven and earth. Paul says that vengeance is not ours, but it is God's. He, He must act in vengeance. He must act in justice. He must punish sin. He must punish this debt that we owe. Problem is, we can't repay that debt. The debt is too large for us. Even if we had a thousand lifetimes to live, to attend church, to do good things, to read the Bible, to pray, we would never be able to pay off this debt of sin to God. We would be without hope. That's why the gospel is such incredibly good news, that we have a compassionate king. A God who with compassion in his eyes sent his own son 2,000 years ago to die in our place, to take our debt upon himself and pay the infinitely high sum we owed. Jesus died as an infinitely valuable sacrifice to pay the infinitely large debt that we owed. Peter brings that point out for chapter 3 verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died in our place. He paid the infinitely high debt we could never pay. And now God offers to every human being the free gift of forgiveness, complete and final and eternal forgiveness, if we will simply accept the payment of Jesus in our place. If we will simply believe that Jesus paid the price of our sins. I don't have to go to church to earn my way to God. I don't have to do good things to earn my way to God. I don't have to give away my money to earn my way to God. I could never earn my way to God. I'm brought near to God simply through accepting the free gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Believing that he died in my place. He died for my debt and then rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. That's the good news of the gospel. We have a compassionate king. 
who has forgiven us an infinite debt. Now, if that good news is new to you this morning, if that's kind of a new idea for you that you don't have to earn your way to God, that it's not about what you do, that it's about what Jesus did, please come talk to me or someone else after this service. There's nothing more you will ever do in all eternity than to accept the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Please come talk to us this morning. For those of us who have accepted that gift, who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, we have been forgiven an infinite debt we could never repay. Even if we had a thousand lifetimes, we could never repay what we owed God. We've been forgiven an infinite debt, and so we should be willing to forgive one another. When we hurt one another, our sins, our offenses, are infinitesimal compared to what we sinned against God. We should be forgiving people because we have been forgiven of so much. That's the king's point in verse 33. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? The forgiveness that God has extended to us obligates us to show mercy and forgiveness to one another. So the first reason that we should be willing to forgive one another is because we have already been forgiven of infinitely more by our heavenly father. But Jesus isn't done yet. He gives us a second reason. Why should we be willing to forgive one another? Forgiveness is hard. It is not natural. It is not easy. Why should we be willing to do it? Reason number two, because withholding forgiveness will cost me greatly. If I withhold forgiveness from you, I will be the one who suffers. I will be the one who pays the cost. Jesus gives two consequences of withholding forgiveness. Consequence number one, God will not forgive me. Now we get back to the beginning of the sermon. When we looked at chapter 6 of Matthew, what's going on here? Jesus implies, the king is clear, he, the, the, the first slave is no longer in a position of forgiveness. He's in prison. He, he's not being forgiven by the king. When I choose to withhold forgiveness, God will not forgive me. What do we do with that? Has this guy lost his salvation? If I'm not a forgiving person, do I forfeit my salvation, my justification? Well, no. What, what we need to understand in the New Testament is there's two types of forgiveness. There's two senses or ways in which God forgives us. The first type of forgiveness that we find in Scripture is legal or eternal forgiveness. This is what we read about in Colossians 2, 13 to 14. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Notice a few things about this. The context of forgiveness here is the law court. This is a legal forgiveness. God is in the law court of the universe. He pulls out our debt certificate, this certificate that lists for all to see all the offenses that we have made, and he writes on it paid in full. This is in the context of a law court. Notice second, the timing. All of this forgiveness is past tense. The verbs here are in the past, having nailed it to the cross having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate. This is all past tense. It happened at a moment in time in the past when we accepted Jesus as our Savior. All of this was finished forever. This forgiveness was given at one moment in the past. Notice also the result. If we were to study Colossians, we would see in the context that the result of this legal forgiveness is that we are justified, that we are declared to be right in God's eyes. We're given eternal life. We are saved at this moment in time that we trust in the payment of Jesus. God declares us to be eternally, legally forgiven in his sight. This type of forgiveness you cannot lose. 
If you are not a forgiving person, you don't forfeit this type of forgiveness because this forgiveness is not based on anything you do. It's based on what Christ did. Okay, so that's one type of forgiveness. It's not what's at stake. What is at stake is the second type of forgiveness the New Testament lays out, relational forgiveness. I want you to turn way to the right in your Bible, the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, it's near the end of the New Testament. And it lays out for us this second type of forgiveness we receive from God. Uh, Just so you know, as we read this passage, the the author, John, is going to use a metaphor, light and dark, light and dark. When he talks about walking in the light, he's talking about walking in obedience to God and righteousness. When he talks about walking in the dark, he's talking about doing the opposite of sinning, of walking in unrighteousness. So read with me, starting in verse 5 of 1 John 1. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's compare this passage to Colossians chapter 2. What is the context here? It's not the law court. It's not legal. The context here is relational. It's about fellowship with God. It's about enjoying God's presence, enjoying the beauty and power of his presence, of his blessings in your life. This is about relationship. It's about being near God. Now, what do you have to do, according to the passage, if you want to be near God, if you want to enjoy fellowship with God and experience his power and blessings in your life? What must you do? You must obey. You must walk in the light. God is light. He is perfectly righteous. He cannot fellowship with darkness, with sin. He can't welcome sin in his presence. The only way for us to walk with God, to enjoy fellowship with God, is to obey God. That presents us a problem. We are sinners. We sin all the time. We blow it. We disobey. When we do, that sin, it stains us. It removes us from God's presence and places us in darkness. We are separated from God. When I choose to sin, I am erecting a wall of separation between me and God. I'm not losing my salvation, but I can't enjoy fellowship with God because my sin is a barricade to fellowship. It is a stumbling block in enjoying the relationship that I'm meant to have with God. Okay, fortunately, there is a solution. When I sin, which I'm going to do, what should I do? 1 John 1, 9, confess. I turn to the Lord and confess. I acknowledge my sin. I say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry for my sin. What's the result? God cleanses us of our sin. And notice again that the timing here. This is something we do continual. Every time I sin, I turn to the Lord in confession. And every time I do, God forgives me. This is forgiveness that is going on all the time. Every time I sin, God is offering this, this forgiveness on a daily basis. This is a continual thing. And the result of it is that I am cleansed and restored into fellowship with God. God doesn't re-save me. He doesn't re-give me eternal life. No, this is about being drawn back into fellowship with God. I once again experience the presence and power and blessing of God in my life. Okay, so in scripture, there's two types of forgiveness from God. Legal eternal forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ at a moment in time, you can never forfeit it. But then there's relational forgiveness. There's enjoying fellowship with God. I do forfeit that if I am not a forgiving person. This is very significant. If, if, if you sin against me, 
even in a huge way, even in a way that causes me incredible pain, if I choose not to forgive you, then God chooses not to forgive me. God will not bust down that wall that my sin has created. He will not draw me back into the light. He will not fill my life with his joy, with his power, with his presence. Instead, I will be like an estranged child. I'm still related to my father, but I'm estranged. I'm not enjoying his presence because I've chosen not to forgive. If we don't forgive one another, God will not forgive us. That's the first consequence that Jesus lays out for us. Second consequence he lays out, second way that unforgiveness will cost us, is pain. I will be miserable. Notice what happens to the first slave. Where is he thrown after he does not forgive the other slave? To the torturers. He is tortured because he is unforgiving. Now, that's not a metaphor for hell. Torture is not about the next life. It's about this life. It's about suffering and pain in this life because I'm not forgiving. If I do not offer forgiveness to those who sin against me, I will experience pain and suffering in this life that is analogous to torture. Now, for those of you who've known someone who harbored resentment, who did not forgive, you've seen that principle at work. They lived a tortured life because they withheld forgiveness. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. It's really ironic. Forgiveness, withholding forgiveness, doesn't so much cost the person who you're withholding forgiveness from. It costs you. It costs pain and suffering in your life. That person who's withheld forgiveness, their life shrivels. They lose joy. They can't move on. They keep reliving the memory of that, that hurt over and over again. It turns them bitter. It shrivels them up. I found this great quote from a guy named Lewis Smeads this week. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Forgiveness is primarily a benefit to me, not to the person who hurt me. I'm blessing myself when I choose to forgive them. If I hold on to that sin, it's like holding on to poison. It shrivels my life. It makes me miserable. It tortures me. If I will give it up, if I will let it go, if I will release it, even though that's hard, then I am freed. I am freed from the prison of torture. And Jesus is very clear. Yeah, forgiveness is really hard, but it is so worth the price. When I choose to forgive someone, it is so good in my life. If I choose not to forgive, then then number one, I'm being a hypocrite because I've been forgiven of so much more. But number two, I free myself from misery. God will not forgive me and I will be tortured if I hold on to that sin, if I don't let it go. Okay, so Jesus has helped us understand this morning, what is forgiveness? How do we offer it? And why should we offer it? But now I want to wrap up with an application. As we walk out of here this morning, how do we apply this? Well, I want to read you to the rest of a passage. We looked at Luke 17, verse 3 earlier this morning. Let's read the rest of it. Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. These two verses are related. Jesus lays out for the disciples, here is the incredible, surprising, shocking extent of forgiveness I demand from you. Somebody sins against you seven times a day, comes and repents seven times a day, you forgive them. You forgive them completely from the heart as often as they sin against you. And how do the disciples respond? God, help us. Oh my gosh, that's really hard. The disciples acknowledge forgiveness is too much for us. I cannot forgive you like I'm called. Forgiveness is a supernatural thing. It's not within my nature, within my power, within my ability to offer biblical forgiveness to those who hurt me. I must have God's help. That's the point. 
The disciples are saying, God, increase our faith, increase our trust in you. Increase our faith that you will make things right. Help us to trust you more. Help us to trust you enough that we can let go of this sin, that we can let go of this offense, that we can no longer demand our right to justice and payment, that we can let go of the memory of this sin. God, help us to let it go. As we walk out of here this morning, this is really convicting stuff Jesus has laid out for us. We need to realize it's not within our power to apply this sermon. If you try to go out of here and do this sermon in your own strength, you're going to fail. This is too big for us. The application is we need to go before the Lord and beg him to grow us to be forgiving people, to grow our faith in him so that we can leave justice to him, to grow our faith in him so that we can let go of the memory of those hurts, so that we can trust in the loving grace and mercy of God. Now, I don't know where each of you are this morning, could be that someone has sinned against you, a believer has sinned against you in a significant way, and you've not yet confronted them. Well, the, the next step for you, the application for you, is to turn to the Lord and ask for help so that you can go confront that person. You need to let them know what they've done. You need to let them know how they've hurt you. That's the first step. You need to confront them. For some of you, the, the thing you're struggling with is, is this idea of letting go of your right to payment. Your right to demand punishment. You want things to be made right. You are struggling with that. The next step for you is to, to grow in faith and trust and turn justice over to God. To no longer demand payment. No longer demand punishment. For some of us, and this is where I really struggle when people sin against me. The challenge for us is that we've let go of our right to exact payment or punishment, but we keep rehearsing the offense. Every time we see that person, we remember what they did to us. We don't want to let go of that memory. It keeps coming to our minds. The challenge for us is next time we see him, will we turn to the Lord and ask for help to change the channel in our brains, to think about something else and no longer rehearse that offense. To take any of those steps, we need God's help. We can't do it on our own. So let's turn to the Lord and pray for his help to grow as forgiving people. Lord God, thank you so much that you have forgiven us of so much. Thank you that though we owed you an infinite debt, you have released that debt. You have let it go. You nailed it to the cross with your son, Jesus Christ. You've forgiven us of the infinite debt of sin. And as a result, Lord, we know that we will spend eternity with you. We're so grateful for that. We know that we are now your children because of the forgiveness you purchased for us in the death of your son. Lord, thank you so much for that. I pray that this week you would help open our eyes to see the magnitude of your grace to see the the magnitude of your forgiveness. And as a result, Lord, that you would teach us to become forgiving people. Help us to see that, that even the worst things that people do to us are infinitesimally small compared to what you've done for us, what you've forgiven us of. Help us to grow as people who are willing to let go of offenses, let go of sins, to truly forgive one another from the heart. I pray, Lord, that this church would be a place of forgiveness, a place where we continually offer to one another the gift of forgiveness. I pray for every person here, Lord, wherever they are in this process of forgiveness of other people, I pray that you would help them to take the next step this week. I pray that you would help them to open their hands just a little bit more and let go a little bit more of the offenses that have been committed against them, the sins that people have committed against them. Help us to let go of those, Lord, to leave them in the past, to offer true, complete forgiveness just like you've forgiven us. I pray, Lord, that we would be people of grace. We be people of grace through the power of your son and the power of your spirit at work in us. We, we declare our dependence upon you, Lord. We cannot forgive one another without your help. So Father, strengthen us and help us this week. 
May it all turn to your glory. May people see this church and glorify you as a result as we become truly forgiving people. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Right, again, if you're new to Grace Bible Church, I will meet you right through the foyer at Discovering Grace in a few minutes. Love to have you guys there.